Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about leading people to become fully surrendered followers of King Jesus. Good morning. Good to see you. Sorry, I got to get my little stuff together up here. Nothing worse than being up here and getting lost, you know? So I just think notes are a helpful thing. I used to be able to do it without them, but I messed up at a wedding one time. And you know what? I prayed for the wrong person. It was a person he had dated before. So yeah, I got notes now, baby. We're not messing this one up. <laughs> yeah, prayed. Diane's jerking my leg. That's the wrong one. I said, honey, I'm trying to pray. She said, that's the wrong name. Oh my gosh. Oh, it was, it was interesting. There was no way to get out of that other than to say, hey, I'm really sorry. So, so this morning, I really had the privilege of being here. I love coming here. I love speaking here. I love you as a church. Uh, it's just awesome. Um, when I found out that, that Saltbox was going to be planted, I, um, I knew that that was coming out of a history of a young man that I had watched walk. With Jesus, I'd watched him be raised up, and then uh, I know he lost his way for a while, and now he's back and, and working here and doing that, but I just knew that this was going to be something special. And I don't know if you realize, but you're in a special place, and this is a special church. Along the way, um, he asked me to be on the board, and so I'm one of the overseers, so I have the privilege of from time to time sharing with you. And I came to the baptism a couple, what, a week ago, two weeks ago, and during that time, he said, hey, can you preach for me in like a week and a half? I said, that's a week and a half. <laughs> he said, I know, but you can do it, you know. <laughs> so I... Uh, I felt like the Lord was, was, had given me something because I, I currently work in a private practice doing mental health and I do uh, a little bit of counseling and in the process of that, I still run across things and I forget, you know, I haven't forgotten that when I see things, I'll think that would be a great sermon. And I'll hear things, I'll hear things come out of my mouth that I know the Lord is giving to this individual that might be in my office or this couple, but at the same time, I'm thinking, that's an awesome sermon right there. <laughs> and so this is one of those. So today I'm going to talk about the gift of waiting. The gift of it. Most of us don't like to wait. I mean, we went in a restaurant the other night. I said, if it's more than 15 minutes, we're out. <laughs> Not doing it. I saw an article the other day of the things that older people are sharing that they're not doing any longer. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> so one of them was, I'm not waiting in line anymore. I mean, I've been waiting in line for 50 years. Nope, if, you, if I can't come in and you say it's your pleasure to serve me, I'm out. So the gift of waiting, we have a culture that doesn't like to wait. And so I want to talk today from the perspective of the Apostle Paul, found in the book of Acts. If you're not familiar or don't read the Bible very much, it's in the book of Acts. Sorry about this, Mike. I'm still wrestling with it. 
And in the book of Acts, that's really a history of the early church. And Paul was a, a main player in the New Testament. He was, he wrote perhaps 27, 28% of the New Testament. He was used by God to take the gospel that originally started with Israel and with the Jewish nation. And then Paul did the transition and suddenly started speaking to the non-Jews. But before he got there, before he got to that place, he had some time out. And I don't know how else to say it, but that's what happened. I want to introduce you to Paul. Look, turn in your Bible, if you have them, to Acts chapter 7. And we're just going to wander through some of these verses. Because I think there's some history here that would be very helpful for us to have. Paul's parents were Pharisees. And he was trained in a lot of Jewish tradition. And he was uh, very smart and very, very sharp intellectually. You ever had those kind of people in school with you? I remember showing up in school and I remember thinking, oh, I need to sit over there near them. These guys are smart. I don't even know where my book is. <laughs> but Paul was one of those guys that knew a lot at an early age and he was trained in an early age. His life goal was to be a part of the Sanhedrin. That would be similar to what we would say in our country, the Supreme Court. So he wanted to be a part of that group. And he had set out to do that at age 13. His parents sent him to Jerusalem to get him educated in this finest institution there with uh, another teacher. So he had this history already at an early age of being someone influential. And so he wanted to be a part of the Sanhedrin. And so the way the Sanhedrin worked, they would sit in a court or a, an oval place. And if, a, if someone had a charge against them, they would be brought in front of this group and then they would discuss and vote on it. And from time to time, people who weren't a part could be in the room, as it were. So this young man named Stephen gets charged for blasphemy and he is brought in front of the Sanhedrin. And most people think that Paul was just one of those loose people in the group. Loose in the sense that they were out there, but they weren't officially apart. So here he is hanging around these heady people. And we find out that Stephen has to make a defense of himself. And if you look in chapter 7... Stephen gets a little personal with the Sanhedrin, and he calls them in verse 51, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So Stephen is now pushing toward the Sanhedrin. He's pushing back on them. As your fathers did, so do you, verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and you've received the law, you who have received the law delivered by angels, and you didn't keep it. So he has made this personal, and they were not happy. It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This guy's getting ready to lose his life because of his charge. And I love the fact 
that the writer of Acts allowed us to see. And this is the only time in the entire Bible where it says that Jesus was standing up in heaven. Every other time it says he's seated at the right hand. But this was so intense and this was so holy that Jesus stood up. Michael and I had lunch on Wednesday and he said that, he said, I've talked about it as being Stephen got a standing ovation from heaven. Now the reason I'm sharing all this is I want to introduce you to Paul. So you go all the way around and if you look at verse 58. They cast stones on Stephen. They were killing him. And then it said, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's the first place you hear about him. Saul later became who we're talking about today, Paul. His name was changed. So he's there and he is, his zeal is unbelievable. If you'll notice, it says they laid their clothes at his feet. Look at verse 8-1. After they had ex executed Stephen, it says Saul approved of the execution. The word approved there in the original language means to join in hearty approval. He wasn't just approving. He wasn't standing with his eyes open and his mouth closed. He is cheering on the murder of this kid. He's cheering it on. That's what was in his heart. His zeal was so great that he is out here cheering on a murder. And then, verse 3, he continued on and it says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. There was a lot of persecution happening here. A lot. And Paul was behind it, and not only was he behind it, but he was cheering it on and making sure it happened. I want to talk about what was going on inside of him, because at this point, a lot of the church got scattered. There was an early church father named Tertullian who said the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Because what happened... The persecution got so intense because uh, they faced the same kind of treatment that Stephen got. And so instead of losing their lives and losing their families, they scattered. They just left. So Paul is going on and he is making sure that the church, and, and when the word there in 8 says ravaged, it means to devastate or ruin. His, his goal now, instead of just being in the Sanhedrin, his goal, his goal was to completely destroy the church. That's what he was out to do. That became his life goal, to ravage and destroy the church. If you look on, in chapter 9, though, something happens. Paul is traveling along, doing all the destruction he can, injuring as many people as he can. And in chapter 9, verse uh, 5, you find the place where Paul ends up becoming confronted by the Holy Spirit and specifically Jesus. And Jesus says to him, even though they didn't see him, the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Everything stopped. 
He was going from village to village, town to town, doing destructive things, and suddenly he is stopped here. And he says, why are you doing this? He loses his sight, and then he is sent and told where to go, and he is sent to it. I loved, I, I thought about this this morning. He is sent, they said, we need you to go to a street called Straight. I just find that even though we're looking at an intense story, this street is where you're going to get straightened out, Paul. I want you to go to this place. And so he goes there and the Lord sends someone, sends Ananias, and he goes to help him. And then in verse 19, I love this. Just flow with me. We're in chapter 9, verse 19. He rose, he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. So he, he made a 180. He's now talking about the goodness of Jesus to the very people that he was trying to kill. And he is, quote, on their side. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Oh, my gosh. And those who called on his name, he destroyed. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring us bound before the chief priests? And Paul continued to increase all the more and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Remember, he's that smart guy, smart as a whip. So you can't debate him. Some said he was half attorney and half preacher. That's who Calvin was, John Calvin. Did the Reformation, 95 Theses. Reformation started 1560. Protestant movement occurred. A lot of those guys at the early days were trained in law. Because for some, for some, faith has to be an intellectual experience. And so Paul had both. And God's heart for Paul was that he would eventually take the gospel to those non-Jews that are the Bible calls Gentiles. So here he is. He's debating all these people. He comes down and out of Damascus, and, and before you know it, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Verse 25. But the disciples took him by night, led him down through the opening in the wall, and lowered him in a basket. And he ended up going to Jerusalem. So he left Damascus because he so frustrated them they wanted to kill him. See, truth creates a response in people. Truth, truth will always create some kind of response. And so for the people in Damascus, they were like, no, dude, we, we know what you've done, and we don't believe this. And they were so angry because what he was giving them was so different from their Jewish tradition and, from, and so different from what they had heard that they didn't want any more of it. And they were going to try to kill him. So he heads off to Jerusalem, and, and he attempted to join the disciples. This is crazy. And they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. They said, no, you're playing a game with us. You're trying to infiltrate us, and then you're going to kill all of us. So see, he's had a change. And I want you to see that. He has had a genuine, authentic change, but the people around him didn't believe it. 
Have you ever confessed and repented of something and your friend said, well, we'll see. That's what this is. They're saying, okay, we'll see. We'll see what you're really like. And so he is there in Jerusalem. Barnabas comes and gets him and, and takes him to the apostles and says, look, we got to trust this guy. He goes on down and it says he, in verse uh, 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. These were people that um, were non-Jewish, but they, in, they still believed in a lot of the law and still acted as if they were Jews, but they were Hellenists. And so he is disputing against them. Now look at verse 29, and he spoke and disputed with them. Of course he did. Everywhere he went was an argument. He was a conflicted man. Everywhere he went. And when the brothers learned this, when the Hellenists heard that, they were seeking to kill him. Again, this is the second town he's been in, second, second place of ministry. In today's world, it would be this is his second church. They're trying, now they want to kill him. First one was Damascus, and now he's here in Jerusalem, and they're trying to kill him. But they were seeking to kill him, verse 30. And when the brothers learned this, or when the church learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Tarsus was his hometown. They're basically saying, dude, you have problems. Everywhere you go, people want to kill you. You're, you're creating a lot of drama for us. There's a lot going on. Why don't you just go home for a while? Turns out, I, I love the next verse. Look at the next verse. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee had peace. I guess so. And they were being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. See, the church is greater than any leader. The church is greater than any leader. And the thing about this little place where I'm walking right here, this is a very dangerous place up here. Because if you're successful at it and if people listen, it can become a head game. And you can really think this is about you. I'm letting y'all in behind the curtain a little bit. And, you know, next spring I'll be 70. And I've done this for about 30-some years. But I can tell you, this ain't about me. This is about God wanting to raise up his church. And even the Apostle Paul was not indispensable. And so the church did him the biggest favor ever by sending him home. Sometimes the very best thing you can do is nothing. Sometimes the very best thing you can do is say, well, let's just wait right here. Why don't we just wait right here? Because the church will always succeed because Jesus said what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It won't stop it. So they send Paul home. He gets into what some would call a season of waiting. I wrote down, most great leaders have a, have a period of time in their life when they're not doing what they thought they were called to do. 
Abraham was promised in Genesis 12 that God, God promised him he'd make him a great nation, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. Do you know how long he waited for that to even start? 25 years. Moses, after fleeing Pharaoh's palace, he spent 40 years, 40 years in the desert tending animals before God called him back to release Israel. Now, what's crazy is we can flip a page and we think, oh, wow, that happened the next morning. Forty years Moses waited for that promise. David was anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel when that was taking place. Twenty-five years. Twenty-five years from the anointing, you're going to be king of Israel till he became king of Israel. Twenty-five years. Jesus is baptized. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. They think he was maybe 12 or 13 Jesus was a carpenter for 18 years before he started full-on ministry. See, that seems to be a pattern with God. So Paul gets sent to Tarsus, and he's there for 10 years, probably. Probably 10 years. I was here a couple of weeks ago, and Michael shared that he probably went back home, probably got back into his father's business. His father was a tent maker. And so here's this educated guy who's really smart, smartest tent maker ever. <laughs> probably explained how leather got made. You know, if you, do you have any of those friends? You know, you'll just ask them a simple question and like 10 minutes later, it's like, you know, this would be fun, but I'm not real interested here. It's like, it's like asking about an airplane and suddenly you're getting a lesson in thermodynamics. I don't need that. So Paul was like that. He explained everything. So now he's making tents. Now here's where we're going to take a jump and, and I want to help you with this because I was very struck by the way Paul was so angry about everything. I mean, I think some of what was going on with him prior to being sent to Tarsus was coming out of a heart of anger. Now, zeal without any kind of guarding or any kind of sort of boundary can be mistaken for passion when really it's just a blind spot. It's a blind spot that comes out. And I think some of Paul's ministry, at least at the beginning, before this period of time, I think it came out of, of some unresolved stuff inside of him that created the kind of anger and the kind of stuff that was coming out of this man. He described himself after the 10 years. So he goes to Tarsus. He spends this period of time there. And then he later writes a couple of different letters, and one of them was to Galatians. And listen to what he says about himself. This is Galatians 1. He said, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Who does that? 
I persecuted the church violently. What you're hearing here is his testimony of before Jesus. And then in Acts, a little bit later, he's making a defense because he's, on, he's charged the same way Stephen was earlier. And he writes about that. He said, I was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing this name of Jesus. This is Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And then listen to this. This is what he's saying about himself. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them. Guys, something's wrong here inside of him. You don't spend your life in raging fury over theology. I mean, I'm very passionate about Jesus, but I'm not passionate enough to kill you for it. There's something wrong there. Listen to this. Paul had a genuine conversion, but all of our issues don't go away at conversion. If you have trouble with anger and control before you meet Jesus, that will be a place that needs attention after. A simple conversion, a simple prayer that asks Jesus into your life will guarantee your salvation. And theologically, you are settled. That's called justification. There's another process after you meet Jesus called sanctification. Paul even wrote at one point, we are to grow up into all aspects unto him. What do you mean grow up? I thought I solved it all when I prayed the prayer. No. You ensured the ability to change after you prayed that prayer. See, before you meet Jesus, you can't really work on some of that stuff. A person that doesn't know Jesus, they think all anger is okay, or at least they don't really care. They don't think about those issues. I didn't. I was involved in sports most of my life. I was pretty aggressive. I was pretty mouthy. And then I met Jesus, and I was just mouthy for Jesus. <laughs> the problem is he doesn't need me to be mouthy. That's not pretty. That doesn't look good. So here's Paul being Paul, but he's got a blind spot. Um, I wrote these two phrases down that I read that were pretty interesting. One British author said, waiting is a common instrument of providential discipline for those to whom exceptional work has been appointed. See, where Paul was going, being angry all the time would never work. It would invalidate the whole message he was trying to give them. It would invalidate everything. And God knew that and God knows that. Chuck Swindoll said, exceptional work is preceded by extended waiting. There are just times in our life where God knows the way of the future 
And we don't know it. We don't know where he's called us to. And I can say to you that from time to time, what we currently are walking in will not fit in the future. It just doesn't work that way. Now, here's the great thing is that these delays and these times like Paul getting sent home, they're not a time of discipline. They're a time of love. It's really out of God's love that he would even say to Paul, I need you to go home and we need to look at that. It's out of love for our future life. Some attitudes and some blind spots won't look good and they don't look good on us. I want to tell you a story about some good friends of mine in Greensboro and some of them may be watching and it's okay. So these guys were all good friends of mine and they had different jobs but most weekends, you would find us in a woodlock cutting firewood. We all had wood-burning fireplaces or wood stoves, and we had someone in our church who burned wood, and she was a single mom. And so we committed to her that she would never have to pay a heating bill. So we cut wood all the time. We scavenged wood. I got wood off the golf course near where we lived. I found the maintenance people. Hey, what are y'all going to do with that tree? I'd love to have that tree. So these guys were just friends of ours. Well, one of them had a business, and his whole world, Alan's whole world, was tractor trailers and big trucks and big equipment, compressors and nail guns and all that stuff. He smelled like hydraulic fluid half the time. So we were at a party, and I made a comment to him. I said, man, you look great. Look at you. Because he's always, you know, all, you know, we lived in those kinds of clothes. Now, they were all very, very smart. They all had engineering degrees. I was probably the dumbest one of the four of us. And they had all these engineering degrees, and they were really smart, and and so we're at this party, and Alan was like, good night. He shaved and everything. I said, wow, you look good. He goes, yeah. Took me three times. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the first time I came down the stairs, Kathy said, you're not wearing that, are you? Go back upstairs. Give it another shot. So he comes back down. He said, I was so excited. I found a Navy shirt. I know this one will work. He comes back downstairs. Nope. One more time. So he continued. And I love him, but he was fashion challenged. <laughs> there are lots of men who are fashion challenged. Because we all had beautiful wives but some of us were fashion challenged. I remember I had a big, bright yellow sweater that I felt like I looked like a big hot dog. I just looked like the mustard. It was so yellow, and Diane would say, honey, don't, just don't. But I loved it, and I wore it once in a while, just once in a while. Challenged. We were fashion challenged. Well, see, in one sense, that's the same thing with Paul. It wasn't that he didn't know how to dress. It wasn't he didn't know how to relate to people because he had this anger. Because these, these seasons of waiting are so important because God is excited to prepare us for our future. 
And waiting is a real gift to help us look at things that we don't normally want to look at. Let me give you four benefits of what waiting can do for us. Because the deal is, you can't see all that God is doing when you're in it. Paul probably did not realize what was happening in his own heart when he went back to Tarsus and was making tents. He didn't know. But see, God knew what his future was, and God knew that what was happening in his heart and attitude, it just didn't look good on him. So the first thing that happens when you're perhaps in a season of waiting or even waiting on God is it gives you a chance to develop and sharpen what's in you, sharpen the skill that's in you. You know, in Luke 16, it says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And sometimes when God has us in a season of waiting, it's because our motivation is probably doesn't look good on us. And people can see when the motivation of ministry is about you. It needs to be about Jesus at all points. It needs to be about him. And when it's not, God will give us an opportunity to sit still long enough to look at that and sharpen that. The second thing that happens is God will grow humility and submission in us. Do you live a life of submission? That's not a hard question. Ephesians 5 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's, you can parse that verb. You can do all kinds of things with that. And it's like looking up the word all in Greek. You know what all means in Greek? All. You know what submit means? It means to submit. And Paul is basic, and again, that's Paul post 10 years making tents. And I think having a time away from what we normally think is going to happen gives us an opportunity to look at life because I can tell you going through life as a demanding person will not be a fun ride. So, God chooses to very graciously have Paul come and look at his life. How humble are you? You know a lot of things, but that's for the purpose of where I'm calling you. It's not for the purpose of elevating yourself. So a time of waiting will grow humility and it will grow submission in us. I wrote this down. Can you do things that you don't want to do without whining and complaining? I guess if I'm honest, I'll say sometimes. I'd love to say all the time. I'd love to say I got all this, but I don't. But I got more of it than I used to, and that's the goal. Here's the thing. Maturity is a process, and the goal is you're not going to get it all at once, but maybe get one more than you had yesterday. Maybe hold your tongue one more time more than you did yesterday. Maybe just change a little bit more. You know, I think probably at about year two, Paul was thinking, okay, I got this. I, I get what you want. And then he barks at somebody and, well, not yet. 
develops skills, it grows humility. The third thing that it does is it shapes character. A time of waiting allows you to be shaped and changed more into the image of Jesus. The word character comes from the Greek, comes, has a Greek origin and it means to engrave. And so the character is what's written on you in here. It's what's written on your heart and, and it comes out in your attitudes and your actions. For example, can you keep your word? Are you a man of your word? Are you a man of your word? Are you consistent in behavior with everyone? Can you admit it failure? Can you admit failure and apologize quickly? That's character development. Can you forgive quickly without holding a grudge? I know some people that can do that. My seven-year-old grandson does it all the time. I watch him get mad. I mean, like, mad. And then the next minute, hey, granddaddy, can we go outside? He's just, like, already forgot that he was going to kill me about a minute ago. <laughs> He's already forgotten it. Because character, when your character is there, I can just share with you, I feel like the older I get, the more I can just say it. I can tell you that if you go through life being demanding and holding grudges, you will end up probably in my office talking about bitterness. Because you can't hold on to stuff. That's the enemy's greatest trick. You cannot hold on to stuff. The last thing it does is it creates depth. A period of waiting will give you time. Please get this one. It will give you time to settle important convictions about God. Here are the convictions that I think need to be settled. The first one is God is good no matter what. No matter what. When you lose something, is God still good? When something tragic happens around you, is he still good? You got to settle that. That has to be, these things are anchors. God is for me no matter what. At one point I took a break in ministry and I was working at the Wilmington Athletic Club and part of my job there, I was doing corporate stuff, memberships and that kind of thing. And also did towels and helped in the bathrooms occasionally. And uh, so I got there, and one day one of the guys walked in, and um, he, he had a cardboard box, and he brought the box in, and he said, yeah, we need your keys and your passwords and all that. We don't need you anymore. I was like 59 years old. I've never been fired. I never lost a job. I never looked for a job. I'd never had a resume. And I'd certainly never had anyone say, yeah, we don't need you anymore. Long story short, they ended up selling the club, and then they ended up, as uh, Joni Mitchell said in uh, Big Yellow Taxi, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. That's what they did. They sold the WAC. For those of you who are not familiar with Wilmington, it was a really nice health club on 17th Street. I was working there. I loved that place. Anyway, Kevin walks in, puts a box down. Is God still good? Yes. 
Is God punishing me? That's the third one. He doesn't punish us no matter what. Even when you get let go, even when you get let go. Was I mad? No question. Did we have words? We did. Did I meet them? I met all the owners and Kevin and Jan in a restaurant that's no longer open now and they're all sitting there and I walked in with Diane and I said, oh look, there's Kevin and Jan. Let's go over there. And they're huddled down. They don't want to talk to me. And I said, hey, I know y'all had to make a business decision and I was really mad, but I don't want you dread seeing me anymore because I've already released you because I'm not going to live with bitterness. Pretty quiet dinner. But I know it spoke to them because I can tell you when you choose to live a lifestyle of demanding your own way and wanting to not forgive that just doesn't look good on you. It's not good. It's good no matter what. He's for me no matter what. He doesn't punish me. He loves me unconditionally no matter what. And the fifth one, there is mystery. I may, I may never understand and I'm okay with it. See, Paul needed to get that. Because at this point in Paul's life, all he knows is I was knocked, you know, blind. I was told to go serve. I was doing that. And now I'm down here making tents. There is mystery sometimes in life that we don't understand. I really today standing here do not understand why that happened at the whack. I don't know. I know it really hurt me. I know it really shook me. But I also know that I had to fight to remind myself that God has us. He will provide for us. My wife and I are going to be okay. We're not going to eat ramen noodles the rest of our life. But at the time, I thought we were. Scared us. It scared us at that age. The older you get, the more these things matter. Now, while you're waiting, this is the last thing. Um, the first thing, because here's the deal, when you're waiting in silence and you're not hearing anything, silence can lie to you and tell you that God has forgotten you. And I want to encourage you that he doesn't forget his people. He doesn't forget who you are. He doesn't forget what you can do. He doesn't forget what's in your heart. He doesn't forget the vision he spoke over you. He doesn't forget those things. But silence can tell you if you misinterpret it and don't frame that correctly. See, for some people, silence feels lonely. For some people, it feels like serenity. And silence will lie to you on a regular basis. That's why you have to hold on. So in the... In this, while you're waiting, the first thing I want to remind you of is guard against apostasy. Apostasy is the practice of forgetting what you once believed. You have to guard that. So if you're in a transition right now with work issues or if you're in a transition with kids and things are changing in your family or if you're in a transition where you're not sure what's next, just wait. 
Let the work do its work. Let the process do its work. So guard against that. Second thing, develop self-awareness. Guard yourself against just using it as a time to pout. Develop self-awareness. Just, you know, like, like when I walked out of the whack that day, good night. Man, I was mad. But then I went from being very mad to very scared, like that fast. And in both of those instances, neither of them turned out to be real. I didn't have to be afraid. God wasn't mad at me. And secondly, he had me. He had us. But at the time, it feels really scary. So some of you may have kids that are out there that you don't know what they're doing, you don't know how they're living, and that could be very scary. So I want to encourage you with that. Third thing, while you're waiting, and this is really key, stay engaged in life. Stay engaged. Because a part of me wanted to quit. Part of me wanted to say, throw those books away. I'm not ever preaching again. I'm never talking to anyone again. I'm never working with people again. I'm tired of it all. Oh, yeah. Not a good plan. Stay engaged and do what you can. Continue to do who you are and what you know to do. Fourth thing, live ready. Be prepared. Noah built an ark way before it rained. So just begin. So it didn't take long and suddenly I'm, you know, doing some other things. But in the process of it, you have to live ready in case. And lastly, develop your gratitude. Because the perspective is, thank you for protecting me from this, that I don't understand what was the problem, but you do. Thank you for protecting me from this and thank you for preparing me for this. I'm here today because I didn't quit back there. I want to encourage some of you. You're thinking about just quitting. Don't quit. Just stay engaged. He knows. Now, here's what I love about this. Turn to Acts chapter 11. We're going to bring this back to Paul. Acts 11, verse 20. So remember the church was scattered and Paul is still making tents. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Here we are, 10 years later, Hellenists are still there. And they're preaching Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord, the Hellenists. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, to this church where this revival is happening. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man. Talking about Barnabas, full of the spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So what does Barnabas do? He went to Tarsus. To look for Saul. Do you see that? See, he knows where you are and you're waiting. He knows where you are. 
Paul was perfect for what happened at Antioch. He would not have been, remember 10 years before when he spoke to the Hellenists, what happened? Oh, we're going to kill you. We're going to run your butt out of town. You're not a, we're not, we don't trust you. 10 years later, a changed man comes. He's changed in here. He's changed in here. He's not bitter. He's not mad. He's not any of that. So he comes and Barnabas pulls him in and Paul's life gets reestablished. See, Paul had truth. He just needed grace. He had truth. See, grace and truth are found in Jesus. If you have all kinds of truth but no grace, that's just legalism. And that stuff will cut people. But if you have grace or no truth, we all feel good, but we might end up not in heaven. You need both. You need grace, but you need truth. Paul got that balance in that time of waiting. So if you're in a period of waiting right now, God is working in there. Let him do his work in you. The Paul that left for Tarsus out of Jerusalem was not the same Paul that went from Tarsus to Antioch. He was a different man. So I want to encourage you. Some of you perhaps have some things that maybe thinking about Alan just doesn't look good on you. There might be some things that just don't look good on you. And it's typically internal stuff. But you could be in a place of waiting because God has some exceptional work for you to do. And it may be much bigger than you're doing right now. But in that waiting period, stay engaged. Get with Jesus. Pull yourself toward him. And let him refire whatever is not currently burning. I feel like I want to pray for any of you who have had either something that you felt like you were supposed to do and something knocked you off course. Maybe you've been wounded in another church and now you're here and it's like, oh, you're like I was. I'm not doing that again. No, don't say that. You don't want to quit God. But if you've been in a place where you felt like you were promised something and then it wasn't happening, let's pray about that today. I was going to ask you to stand, but I'm not going to do that because that could keep some of you from being honest. So we don't want to let others know that we really got stuff in here. So I want to pray for you real quick. And... Um, I want to invite those of you who are going to pray for people up front. If there's a few of you that will be down here, I want to have you come down as well. If you would come now, that would be helpful. And then as they're coming, I just want to personally pray for you and pray over this word. So Jesus, some of us are sitting here, probably most of us have had disappointment in life. And we felt like you just turned your back on us and you didn't protect us and we were hurt. Help us not to fight you. Help us not to fight the process, Lord. Help us not turn from you. 
Help us to let the process of waiting work for us. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to look good. And when things don't look good on us, you'll tell us. Thank you for being a God that will tell us when things need to be changed. Lord, there's some people here that have wrestled with pride and they haven't wanted to hear from you. They've been sad and, and they've been kind of angry about you. Don't really like you, Lord. And I pray that you would quietly walk walk near them and just maybe help them see that doesn't look good. I pray for some of these believers that are here that maybe have been disappointed. I pray that you would refire those early visions. Refire those things that we know are in there that you told us about. And we've kind of walked away because we've been in a dry season. I ask, Lord, that you water the dry season on your, on your church today. That you water those places in this church where people have struggled and feel like they're dry and it's never going to rain again. Lord, I pray for the rain of your spirit to begin to help people feel encouraged again. I pray for freedom from people who are in bitterness and in bitter places. And I pray for your grace over this place, Lord. Thank you for your grace that you are God that wants us to walk in a good way, hearing your voice and doing what you've called us to do. Lord, help those who want to give up to not give up. And I pray, Lord, lastly, for anybody here that has never really met you, but they see something. And I'm asking Jesus that you cause them to begin to ask questions, either of family or people around them, or just begin to pray. Because Jesus, you're the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. We love you, Lord. Thank you for putting some of us in a waiting period so that you can prepare us and get us where we need to be. We love you, Father, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you wanted prayer that's more personal, these guys are here and are available to pray for you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share with you. God bless you and have a great day. Thanks. I will lift my
and I'm shutting out the noise. I know that you will speak clearly when I'm living out my faith, when I'm stepping on the sea. I know you'll take my hand and walk with me. You'll walk with me. Before my breakthrough, till my song becomes my triumph, and I sing because I trust you. I will bring my heart. I will. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.